I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. Federal regulators revoked emergency use authorization today of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, two malaria drugs that President Trump touted as potential treatments for COVID-19. The Food and Drug Administration said today this drug may not be effective to treat COVID-19. The FDA said the drugs are unlikely to produce an antiviral effect, and earlier observations otherwise, the FDA said, have not been consistently replicated. Dr. Simone Wilds joins us from South Shore Health near Boston. So what happened? We are all trying to find a cure for COVID-19, and there was some promise with early studies that were done with um, hydroxychloroquine, and everyone got on that bandwagon that we really needed to do something for these patients, and there was a lot of promise. However, as we have progressed and learned more, we have found there's not a lot of benefits to using the hydroxychloroquine, um, and there's a lot of side effects which are very worrisome about the drug. Yeah, this is no small drug. This is a powerful drug if it can treat malaria. Yeah, and it's also used to treat lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. So, you know, it has its particular use, but... Right, but no specific study to say it's actually beneficial for COVID-19. So how big of a disappointment is this? I, I think we all want something to cure COVID-19. We're seeing so many deaths. And as healthcare professionals, we also feel a little helpless because we want to do something for the patient. There's something that gives us hope. We're going to go to it. But I think... This did not really pan out the way we hoped it would. I know everyone, including the president, has tried it, but as scientists, we follow the data, and that's what we're doing. We're going by the scientific information that we have, and based on the studies that have now been released, they say there is not enough data to support the benefits of hydroxychloroquine uh, for COVID-19 patients, and the big issue is the serious side effects, in particular, the cardiac arrhythmias. I noticed, though, that the FDA said some of the clinical trials would continue. Is that a good practice, given the potential side effects? I I think they really just want to get more data in order to give clear answers. But preliminary data, not very effective for treating COVID-19, but more studies can continue. But, you know, we don't want to continue giving it to patients if it's going to have severe side effects. Now what? What's the next best thing? Well, you know, we have a few things that we're working on. Um, You know, we're still doing remdesivir um, as one of the big drugs. I mean, again, still lots of studies. There are other biologics that we are using. And of course, the biggest thing is working on vaccines. It's rare that the public take such an interest in these kinds of treatments. But this is the process, isn't it? Trial and error, figuring out something that might work and then figuring out it doesn't work. This is a long process. It is a long process, but it's also the safest process. Meaning once you have information that's going to be relevant about the safety of drugs, then we go ahead and we continue the studies. If it's not very safe, I think you want to protect people's lives, so you want to stop. 
Dr. Simone Wilds, an ABC News contributor, joining us from South Shore Health in Weymouth, Massachusetts. In nearby Boston today, playgrounds reopened for the first time since they were shut to control the spread of coronavirus. Matt Reed from our affiliate WCVB in Boston has more. For the first time since the outbreak of COVID-19, playgrounds in Boston are back open. Oh, burn off some energy. Yep, me and my little buddy Elena. There will be signs in English and Spanish at every playground and splash pad in the city alerting parents about the new safety procedures. Children and adults are to keep six feet away from others, wear face coverings at all times, and wash or sanitize their hands before and after visiting. Some rules will be easier to enforce than others. Six feet apart, for sure. Six feet apart, because kids love to play with each other. I mean, I work at a school, so I totally get it, you know, so I think that's going to be the hardest thing. But not all park features are reopening. Basketball, street hockey, and handball courts will remain closed. Fitness equipment still can't be used, and group sports like soccer, baseball, and football aren't allowed. While the popular Tadpole Playground remained relatively empty on the first day of reopening, it's an open question whether parents will feel comfortable letting their kids play in communal spaces while the pandemic continues. The bars in Florida reopened more than a week ago. And now a popular spot on the beach in Jacksonville is closed for cleaning after a number of customers said they tested positive for COVID-19. Kaylee Tracy of our affiliate WJXX in Jacksonville has more on this. It's not ready. It's not, we're not ready. Um, I do regret going out that night. Kat Layton and a group of about 15 friends went out to Lynch's pub last weekend to celebrate one of their birthdays. Kind of noticeably was like, this is a, this is a lot of people, you know, um, a lot of people close proximity, like a dance floor kind of thing, which I was excited about. I can't lie. I was one of those people that, I mean, I'm a walking person that was just fighting this thing of like, ah, come on, it's not that serious. And I got it. A few days later, Layton says 12 out of 15 of them tested positive for COVID-19. Several others have posted on social media saying they were there too and tested positive. I have to do my part in letting people know that it's not about us. It's not about how you feel always because... Um, You could be contracting the disease and giving it out without showing any symptoms. Lane says their friends with employees told them they tested positive and the employees helped close the pub for cleaning. The employees, she says, are also now being tested. And Layton has a message about moving back to life as normal. Trust me when I say I miss it too, but if we're not paying attention to what is actually going on and we're just kind of opening things up, we're going to contract it and we're going to kill people in our own community. We have well documented the financial toll of the coronavirus. Some who are out of work are turning to goodwill. Chief Executive Steve Preston spoke with ABC's Amy Robach. Thanks for being with us right now. So with so many people dealing with unemployment, how, how is goodwill helping communities find job resources right now? Well, Goodwill is the largest provider of workforce development services in North America. So we help millions of people through this journey every year. And so uh, right now, a great way for people to begin that journey is to come to us on Goodwill.org. And you'll find any number of resources available there. Uh, And I point people to three things. Uh, Number one, you can actually search for local job offerings in your area and even apply for those jobs online. That capability is is actually powered by Indeed.com, which is an important partner of ours. And and it's very critical during this time because a lot of people are beginning to open. Secondly, you can get valuable training skills online. Everything from uh, developing workforce skills, uh, developing specific technical skills like digital, and, and even help in writing resumes. 
And the third thing you can do is online, you can find your local Goodwill. Uh, there may be a career center right down the road from you. And that's where you can go to meet with people one-on-one or virtually to find out um, more specifically how to prepare yourself. Maybe get a job coach, uh, find other supports you might need. So there's a whole lot of ways that we can help people in this journey. And tell us how people are able to access and use the work resources that Goodwill is providing. Well, so if you if you contact a local Goodwill, uh, in many cases, those centers are beginning to open. So you can actually come in and meet one on one with job uh, career navigators and people that can help you. About 75 percent of our locations are meeting with people virtually and over 30 million people a year uh, come on to Goodwill.org to actually take classes. We have um, millions of people taking online classes that are very specifically related to the jobs that, that, that people will need. And it's very important right now for people to understand that the skills you needed for your last job may not be the skills you need for your next job. And so now is a great time to be investing in yourself to build those skills which may be actually able to lead you to an even better opportunity than you might have had before. Yeah, that's so important to remember. Also something that we all know is that Goodwill is probably best known for allocating donations, providing goods for those in need. And so a lot of us, while we've been in lockdown, have used that opportunity to clean out our closets and our homes. So what's the best method now for them to donate those collected items to your stores? Great question. Uh, about two-thirds of our stores are open, and every day we're seeing more of those open based on local guidelines. So you can bring those donations to us, and, and we will be accepting them and processing them getting into the stores. If you're a shopper, it's also a terrific time to shop because all of those donations are coming in. And so they're just great bargains, great treasures to be found. And, and, and thank you for mentioning that every one of those donations, every time you buy something, actually goes to help people in need in your local community. Well, we certainly applaud all of the efforts you are making for all of those people in need. Steve Preston, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And with me now is ABC chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, as we're starting to see some of those cases rise for the past several weeks of protest, questions continue about just how this coronavirus spreads and how different environments may affect that transmission. We've discussed about whether summer weather will help slow the infection. That's not necessarily what we've seen. And I know that you have some new data to talk about. Yeah, and this is really important, Amy, because we remember we're only six months into this and how this virus is actually spread or transmitted is critical for controlling it and learning how to live with it. There is new data that I wanted to share with you. Um, it's about whether or not this virus can be spread via aerosol or airborne. Now, those are scary terms, but there are uh, a lot of people looking at this right now. Recent data just published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases found that simulated sunlight inactivates the SARS-CoV-2 virus. 90% of the virus is actually inactivated in less than 20 minutes. They also found that humidity plays a role, but not without sunlight, which was interesting. So again, ongoing data and research in exactly how the environment affects this virus, really, really important so that we can learn how to control it. And with what you just said, it seems as though a summer environment would help slow the spread of the virus, but that's not what we're seeing in some of these hot states. 
Exactly. And so we're seeing this play out in real time, but there are a lot of other theories and elements and factors that are going into this. Number one, we need to figure out how much virus is actually in these particles as they're spread. That's really important. The airflow dynamics in between someone who's infected and uninfected, whether they're indoors or outdoors, obviously plays a role. And whether people are wearing masks, that will also play a role in understanding what we call the transmission dynamics. All right. What do we still need to learn here? A lot. <laughs> in, and in terms of aerosol science, um, there is a brilliant aerosol scientist at Virginia Tech named Dr. Lindsay Marr who's working on this. But we need to know whether this is a combination of spread by contact, by respiratory droplets, and or by aerosol slash airborne transmission. We need to know how the ambient temperature affects their survival, which hopefully we'll be getting some more information on as we go through the summer. We definitely need to know how effective masks are at reducing both the spread and your risk of getting infected and how different masks may affect that. And we need to know how this virus behaves indoors as well as outdoors, whether air conditioning, fans, et cetera, whether that affects spread. So a lot still being studied. All right, Dr. Jen, we appreciate it. Thank you. Well, as states reopen across this country, many are seeing an increase in coronavirus infections and hospitalizations. Yesterday, Texas reached a new high for patients hospitalized with COVID-19. Here to tell us how his city is doing is San Antonio, Texas Mayor Ron Nuremberg. Mayor Nuremberg, thanks for being with us. And, you know, last week, San Antonio's Metro Health Director claimed your city was entering a second wave. What have you seen? Do you agree with that assessment? We are definitely in a second peak. It's, there's no doubt about that. We've seen an increase in the level of infection overall, which we knew was going to happen as uh, the governor opened up many businesses at a pretty quick rate. Uh, we knew transmission was going to increase. What we didn't want to see, though, is, an, is a corresponding rise in the hospitalizations or the severity of cases. But we're starting to see that as well. Um, Our hospitalizations are up. The utilization of ICUs as well as ventilators are up, which shows that, you know, people are getting sick and they're they're also um, getting severely sick. What's most concerning, though, is that we've seen the largest increase in infection among 20 year olds. And not only that, but the uh, demographic within the hospitals is also starting to, to change a little bit where we're seeing younger patients in the hospital. So we are urging everyone, despite what the state state uh, opening might be, to exercise caution, wear face mask when possible, uh, certainly when you're not able to maintain physical distancing, and do all the things that the professionals in our health industry have told us to do from the very start, sanitation, uh, hygiene, et cetera. Yeah, in addition to uh, those guidelines, many experts believe the key or a key to fighting the coronavirus is widespread testing. How is testing going there in your city? Yeah, we've been very aggressive with testing, and that's one of the reasons why I think we've been in a strong position for containment and management of the disease. And we still are there, but we have to make sure that people don't let their guard down. And testing has been one of those things. Uh, we are nearing 100,000 tests completed at this point, and we've been very aggressive in, the, in terms of targeting areas where we know there's lower levels of access to health care, where people might not have access to the information. So we've seen a, a, a very strong testing regimen uh, that's far exceeded our goals for uh, testing for the last several weeks, over a month now, based on our, our medical experts' guidance. Now, we know the, the health impact of COVID-19, but we also have talked a lot about the economic impact. It's frankly devastating. So what programs are in place there to help aid those who are hurting financially? 
You know, it is. And, and that's the other side of this pandemic is the, the economic crisis that's come as a result. But we have to recognize that a healthy economy starts with healthy people. What people are realizing, though, across this country and, and seeing the lines in the food bank that, you know, really have doubled overnight since this pandemic began is just how precarious millions of Americans' economic situation has been and, and how close they were to losing their homes just from one paycheck to the next. And so what we've done in San Antonio is really focus on the essential needs first, but also as we go into a recovery and, and resiliency program, how we can build San Antonio to be a stronger and more equitable community uh, from the start. So we're looking at a, a strong position on making sure uh, we're addressing housing security, uh, focusing in on workforce development so that people can get back to work, but also get back to work in the long run, because we know the economy uh, post-COVID is going to be a lot different than the pre-COVID economy. And then things that get families and, and workers and students able to connect, which is the digital divide. The digital divide in America, just like here in San Antonio, corresponds to lower income communities. And so if we're going to get people access to economic mobility, we've got to make sure they can connect to the Internet. So one of the elements of our recovery program is bridging the digital divide. All right. Well, we certainly appreciate your time today, Mayor Nuremberg. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Now, the Connecticut mom and educator with the brainstorm about keeping this summer fun for her kids that all of us can actually try at home. I am Dr. Candace Barato-Fair. I'm an assistant professor of education and program coordinator of the Early Childhood Studies Infant Toddler Mental Health Program at Central Connecticut State University. I'm also the mom of two little people, Chelsea, who is 10 years old, almost 11, and Corey, who just turned nine years old. I had an idea that camps were going to be closed probably before they announced it, because I, and so I wanted to prepare my kids. I told them probably in like March, in the March, because I knew I needed some time to prepare them for the disappointment that I'm sure they would be feeling. One of the biggest fears I had once we found out that camps were not going to happen for the most part, were thinking about how are we going to replicate the fun of summer? Because this was like their chance to do things that they didn't have time to do during the school year. We decided to make our own camp for our family. We're going to have fair camp. So I told them that everybody will be in charge of one week in July and one week in August for you to plan out the whole week of camp for the four of us. They were so into it, they couldn't wait to start planning. So my daughter's already like, oh, I want to do an art week. And my son's like, oh, I want to do a building week. I want to do a Lego week. And can I get everybody a Lego set? And mom, you have to do a Lego set too. It's like, all right, well, you know what? So we all had to agree to support each other's weeks, whatever they are. Gives the kids a chance to be creative. It also gave them a chance to think about what you really need to accomplish an event. But they had to plan and they have to budget and they have to order materials. It's not just about them. It becomes about the whole family. So that part has been really interesting to watch. I'm really looking forward to see what they've come up with. I'm really looking forward to see how their minds have gone from paper to implementation. I think that growth, just to see that growth as a teacher parent is exciting for me. I think for parents that want, might want a little advice on how to create one of these, I think just sit down and talk to your kids first. Find out what it is they really wanted to get out of the summer experience and then see how you can extend it or maybe find a different way to replicate that experience. 
Ah, the Fair family continuing to inspire us all. Well, up next here on What You Need to Know, Dr. Jen Ashton is here to answer your coronavirus questions. And we will be finding out new information about an important precaution on the COVID-19 front lines protecting your eyes. Stay with us. Dr. Jen Ashton is back with answers to our questions on this Monday. Dr. Yep. Jen, we'll start with the first one. What do we know about the increase of cases in China? Well, we're following this closely, Amy. This is news that broke out of the capital of Beijing. They had had no cases for a while. Then they picked up over 70 confirmed cases that they are tracing to a wholesale food market. Many of those cases uh, in people showing symptoms, they are now instituting a return of a partial lockdown. So they're taking their steps back to try to control this. What's interesting and getting a lot of attention from infectious disease specialists and public health officials here is that the CDC in China is suspecting that the transmission came from surface contact with with food there at that wholesale market. Mm. We've heard actually the opposite here, that surface transmission of this virus is not the major route of spread. So more confusion, more seemingly conflicting um, messaging. But again, we're following what happens there closely. Yeah, that is certainly concerning, to say the very least. Next question. How can blood plasma potentially be used to prevent infections? So under the umbrella of immune therapy, this is generating a lot of excitement and interest in research for treatment and prevention for COVID-19. So you're taking convalescent plasma from people who have been infected with COVID-19, and instead of then using using it to treat other sick patients, those antibodies being given and now in clinical trials to try to prevent. Same basic concept as a vaccine. The difference from a vaccine is that the vaccine triggers your body to Mm -hmm. produce those antibodies. This type of treatment, those antibodies are primed and ready to go and ready to attack. So prevention and treatment, that's why we're we're so interested and so focused on immune therapy for COVID-19. All right. That makes sense. I think I might know the answer to this next question. I'm pretty excited, (laughs) only because I've been sitting next to you for the last few months. Is there less risk associated with eating outdoors at restaurants versus inside? Short answer, we don't know, but we think so, yes. And again, it has to do with airflow dynamics, more ventilation, crosswind, potentially sunlight or humidity or temperature. Um, The key is distance. We've talked about those elements before, time spent, space apart, where you are indoors or outdoors and how densely populated that area. So it's not just one issue, but right now the thinking is that outdoors may be safer than indoors, but again, still being researched. Right. Um, I haven't had to face this next question. Uh So what precautions should be taken if you have to use a public restaurant? Well, I think you're about to face it, right? Because you're going on a little road trip, maybe, on your vacation. That's true, but we we do have a bathroom on the RV. You're bringing your own porta potty. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So there are a couple of issues. Number one, hand hygiene, hand hygiene, incredibly important. With all the surfaces you're touching, you want to wash your hands, maybe even as you get in there and definitely as you leave. Keep your mask on. That's really important because the theoretical risk is that if someone who is just infected with COVID-19 was just in that space, the clo- they, do- they close the door, there's no ventilation, and you go in several Several seconds or minutes later, potentially those aerosol particles, those respiratory droplets can still be lingering in the air. So masks, hand hygiene, if possible, 
wait a little while before the last person comes out. But as we know, that's not always possible. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Jen. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. I think you're sticking around for this next segment, so don't go anywhere. As evidence continues to emerge that COVID-19 can be transmitted through the eyes, researchers are advising people in high-risk categories wear eye protection as well as practicing social distancing and wearing a mask. So for more on how to protect your eyes from COVID-19 is Dr. Sunir Garj, retina surgeon and professor of ophthalmology at Will's Eye Hospital. Thank you for being with us. We certainly appreciate it. So first, tell us about the COVID symptom of pink eye. What's the latest on that? So some people with COVID can get pink eye, but for the vast majority of people, when their eyes become red or irritated, typically they'll have other things such as an allergy and not COVID. If people have pink eye in the context of a fever or shortness of breath, maybe I'm a bit more worried about them having COVID-related pink eye. But for most people whose eyes are puffy, itchy, red, scratchy, it's something else besides COVID, especially if they don't have any other symptoms in their body. Okay, that's really good to know. And we've heard Dr. Jen uh, actually uh, talk about this Lancet recently publishing a review that talked about eye protection as effective in lowering the risk of catching the coronavirus. Do any type of glasses work or do you think the wraparound glasses are necessary at this point? So it's a great question. With this study specifically looked at the use of eye protection in healthcare settings. And for healthcare workers, there does seem to be an advantage of goggles. And it seems like goggles are potentially better for people who are taking care of patients. But for most people, as they go about their daily lives, the American Academy of Ophthalmology does not have a recommendation for regular people out in a walk to wear eye protection for this reason. And what about visits for eye exams? Obviously, that's a touchy issue for both the patient and the physician. So what changes have there been uh, to make it safer for both people? It's a great question. And I think we as a profession have been really on the forefront of trying to make it safe for our patients to come in to get the essential eye care that they need. The era of having a packed waiting room is basically over. When patients come in, they'll often get asked if they have any COVID symptoms or if they've been around anybody who's had COVID in the past 14 days or if they have any fevers. In the waiting rooms, there's social distancing in place, so we've removed a lot of our exam chairs. The number of people coming in every day has also gotten reduced. We're actively calling patients and those that need care, we're encouraging them to come in. But for people that can safely wait, we're encouraging them to still hold off and coming in unnecessarily. When they come in, they'll see all the healthcare personnel, at least in our offices, wearing masks and gloves. We're meticulous about cleaning the rooms, and we're really trying to get patients moving through the office much quicker than we did before to try to give them an opportunity to get the important eye care that they need, but also stay safe. That's right, because eye care, especially this time of year, is pretty important, especially for people like me who have allergies. Eye irritations are so common this time of year, so and certainly bothersome as well. What are some of the best treatment options for that, in your opinion? So if people are having allergies, and I know that I have allergies in my eyes, there's a lot of good options. If they have a runny nose along with it, taking an oral anti-allergy medicine that's over-the-counter can be really helpful. If it's just the eyes that they're bothersome. Some people find that artificial ears can be helpful. Other people, there's a lot of really good over-the-counter as well as prescription anti-allergy eye drops that taken once or twice a day as needed work wonders. Yeah, I don't know what I would do without my eye drops. Thank you, Dr. Garch, for joining us today. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you. 
As the pandemic weeks turn into months, some people are finding themselves working from home a lot longer than they expected to. And many are looking for ways to make their work from home set more reliable. And as we adjust to this new way of life here to help us out with that, it's Consumer Reports tech writer Thomas Germain. Thomas, thanks so much for being with us. And I know working from home is just kind of become a new reality now. And so people are looking for ways to create a a better, more substantial home office. What should people consider when setting up that space? Sure. So when I started working from home after the lockdown started and spending all this time hunched over my laptop, I noticed a lot of pain in my back and my shoulders right away. It was even making me feel more tense and stressed out. Uh, Fortunately, we've written a couple of articles about this with guides and tips for people. The two biggest things to consider are the way you arrange your workspace and the actual items and devices you're using during the day. All right, yeah, so neck and back pain, some people complaining about sore wrists and fingers working behind those home offices. So what about uh, some tips for setting up that ergonomic home office? Absolutely. So there's four easy ways you can alleviate uh, that pain and set up your workspace to be a little more ergonomic. The first thing is to consider your keyboard. There are keyboards designed for ergonomics to place your hands and wrists in a healthy your more natural position than conventional keyboards do. That can minimize discomfort and even uh, help alleviate injuries such as tendonitis. Uh, you can get an ergonomic keyboard for less than $40, but the best keyboards in Consumer Reports test down start around $100. Uh, some of our favorites are the Kinesis Freestyle 2 and the Logitech Ergo K860. Uh, you also want to pay attention to your work chair. You know, when you're assessing your workstation, that's a great place to start. You don't have to buy an expensive adjustable task chair to get a healthy posture. Uh, An ideal seating position uh, is the main thing to worry about. And that includes three things. You want your feet to rest on the floor. If they don't, uh, try a stable footrest. You want your pelvis and your lower back to sit snugly against the back of the chair, even a pillow or a cushion. And your shoulders should be relaxed as well with your elbows near your sides or on the armrest. You want your arms to be bent around 90 to 115 degrees when you put them on that keyboard. Uh, the other thing to consider is readjusting your monitor. Uh, the top of the computer monitor should be right at eye level, so you're gazing slightly down towards the center of the screen. Uh, and you can also think about using headphones or headsets for those long phone calls. One of these to tighten up your back and your back is cradling your phone between your shoulder and your ear. Easy way to solve that is to use headphones or earbuds or even just using the speakerphone on your device. Let's talk about Wi-Fi, because at least at my house, I've got my husband on Zoom calls. I've got three teenagers on Zoom classroom calls, and I can't even, like, send anything at this point. So what are some ways people can ensure optimal Wi-Fi service with so many people using it at the same time? So if you're having problems with that intermittent slowdowns or weak or spotty Wi-Fi coverage in certain parts of your home, this could be a good time to upgrade your router. Sometimes the one that your cable service provided isn't enough to fit your needs. Uh, you can consider uh, buying a new one, and that can be especially helpful to handle those increased demands that comes with everyone at home working or kids gaming and streaming Netflix on, on uh, screens all over the house. If you're in a small house, there are a lot of options that we recommend. In our test, one top performer is the TP-Link Archer C3150V2. That costs about $150. Uh, If you're in a larger home or if you're in a house with a lot of stone or concrete, you can try a mesh router system, which is the devices. Uh, CR recommends the Netgear Orbi, which gives you three uh, devices for $400, or the Eero Home Wi-Fi, which uh, costs about $250 for free. Those are some really, really good tips. We certainly appreciate it. Thomas Germain, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me on. 
And if you're looking for items that check off all of these boxes for your home office, you can visit Consumer Reports online as well. All right, we turn now to Dr. Jen for final thoughts today. Amy, today I'm watching with a fair amount of concern the COVID rates, not just here in the U.S., which are going up in so many states, but in other countries, other parts of the world. Uh, This is not behind us by any stretch. And I have also been thinking about why the response and the steps has been in many cases so fraught with mixed messages and confusion, which doesn't help when you're dealing with a global health crisis and emergency. And I think that part of that has to do with the fact that we just don't know enough about this virus right now. So recommendations are being made that are not yet based on good data uh, or evidence. We don't really understand uh, truly how this virus is spread in all different scenarios. We don't have a good testing strategy. We don't have great contact tracing protocols yet. And we have difficulty, therefore, isolating and diagnosing confirmed cases. So I think the message right now that I'm really trying to focus on is as this virus continues and as we try to learn how to live with it safely, we have to proceed with extreme caution. I'd rather see people do more today um, than less so that down the road we can say, oh, we did a little more than we had to do because people's lives are at stake. And whether it's directly or indirectly, this virus is affecting everyone. So a lot of focus and concern right now. And in following the guidelines right now to social distance and wear masks and eye protection, that's even right. if you need to. That's the best we have right now. So yep. that's really all we can do. Nonprofit organizations and families have come together during this time and have been working around the clock to help other families. And one kid wanted to do his part as well. Here to join us via Skype is Kyle Garvis, an eighth grader from Texas, who started to help Kids Meals Houston throughout his basketball team. Kyle, thank you so much for being with us. And first, just tell us how you got involved with Kids Meals. Well, the Kids Meals organization, um, they actually fill the bridge for preschool children and how they don't get meals after going to school through school. And I, I I did it with my, a year year round basketball team, the Memorial Flyers about two years ago in sixth grade during Thanksgiving, where we gave meals to families and we delivered about 200 meals in that. That was pretty much the start of it. And then this past year I asked my principal and coaches if I could do it with the basketball and football teams and they said yes, and we did about 200 to 300 meals. And then after COVID, Kids Meals said that they were delivering 7,000 meals a day, and they were really low on supplies, and the children and families that um, needed it weren't getting it because they usually get their meals from school. So then we got to fill that gap. Yeah, and what, what made you want to be so involved with this organization? Um, I just really saw the need of the kids because doing it, having done it in the past, it really like kind of made me realize how much they need it. And I thought to myself that it would be a great time to do it since I have so much time and no after school activities that I could do it. But how amazing that you're putting your energy and your focus into helping others. So what's the reaction been like from the community that you're helping serve? It's been amazing um, because my school obviously they would help and give so much support and then I'm just so happy that Kids Meals is getting all the recognition because they really need it 
and with like all the things they're doing for all these kids, these kids is just so just awesome to me. What have you learned throughout all of this? I've learned that like no matter your age or what you come from or whatever you do, that you could just easily like give back and no, even if it's a small thing, a big thing, you can just give back. And I'm so thankful that I'm able to do this and I'm thankful for everyone that's helped me. Aww, that's so sweet. And Kyle, how can other people help? Where can they go? How can they help? Um, kidsmeals.org is their website and they have, they can accept donations and it's just a, it's a great organization. So, well, you're a very great kid. I can't believe you're only in eighth grade. All right. Kyle Garvis, thank you so much for being with us. We certainly wish you the very best. And again, thank you so much for all that you're doing. Thank you. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.